scheduling on a supercomputer typically is by post-it, right? It's, Joe, it's your cluster this week, right? But I need it next week, right? And it's, it's not, it doesn't work that way at scale anymore, right? You, you, you want to uh, interact with something uh, that, that is actually understanding the use of the cluster, optimizing its use so that the overall output across all of the uh, users is, is, is guaranteed at any given point in time. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. This is a conversation I had with Stefan Fabel, who is a senior director of product management at NVIDIA, where he works on the base command platform software that runs on top of NVIDIA's DGX machines, which are basically the most powerful computers that you can buy to train your machine learning models on top of. And it's fun to talk about the challenges that customers face when they have access to basically unlimited compute power. This is a super fun conversation and I hope you enjoy it. My first question for those who haven't heard of NVIDIA Base Command, since you are the senior product manager on it, can you tell me what, what Base Command aspires to do? Yeah, so in a way, think of uh, uh, NVIDIA Base Command as so you one-stop shop for all of your AI development. So it's a SaaS offering from NVIDIA where you log on directly or you log on via uh, you know an integration partner and you leverage the capabilities of Base Command to schedule jobs across a variety of infrastructures. And you do that in a secure manner. You gain access to your to your data and retain access to your data and data sovereignty, um, uh, it, you know, across the infrastructure that you're uh, that you're scheduling the jobs on, and then it's really uh, just a matter of uh, optimizing that job run on NVIDIA infrastructure. So that's really what what Base Command aims to do. And so these jobs are they're model training jobs exclusively, or is it broader than that? Yeah, model training jobs are uh, generally the ones that that we focus on, but we also do model validation, for example. So you, you could have single shot inference runs as well. And are there other pain points, I guess, of model development that Base Command aspires to to solve or tries to solve? Yeah, so I think that uh, a lot of the 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 issues that you have with with uh, AI infrastructure, it's really that's where it starts, right? It's sort of the question is, where do you train uh, your models and how do you go about it? And so most people start in the cloud uh, to, to train their models, right? And that's reasonable because just any uh, development effort would start in the cloud today. And then at some point, you reach a certain amount of scale where you say, well, you know, it may not uh, uh, deliver the, the performance I need or it may not deliver the scale I, 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 I need uh, at the economics I'm uh, I'm comfortable with, et cetera. And so for those high-end runs, uh, you, you typically uh, you, you look at infrastructure alternatives, right? So then the question becomes, okay, I already am used to this whole SaaS interaction model with my AI development. So how do I maintain that developer motion going forward where I don't have to teach them uh, something new just because the infrastructure is different? And so what we have at NVIDIA is this, uh, you know, DJX Superpod. And the idea is to say, well, how about we try this and, and develop base command as a way to access a Superpod just as, you know, a cloud API would behave. And so a DJX Superpod, is that something that I could put in my own infrastructure or is that something that I could access in the cloud or both? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, so typically uh, our customers for superpods, I mean, maybe we should take a step back and understand what it what it is, right? So, uh, you know, when you, uh, the easiest way to think about, or the most straightforward way to think about a DJX superpod is to think of it as a supercomputer in a box. And it's a packaged up uh, infrastructure solution from NVIDIA that you can purchase and it, it'll be deployed on premises for you in your own data center or in a colo facility. And actually, we found that the Colo facility is the most likely place for you to put that because it is a pretty um, intensive investment, uh, number one, not just in terms of the uh, just the number of DGXs that are involved, for example, but also, of course, in the terms of the power draw and cooling and just the requirements that you need to bring to even run, uh, run this beast, essentially, essentially right? Uh, so... Yeah, so I mean that's that's really uh, that's really what then dictates kind of where this thing usually is, right? So uh, we what we did is we put it in uh, in a, a cola facility and make it available 
uh, right now in kind of directed availability fashion. So we have a couple of golden tickets for uh, some customers who want to be on this thing. And then they get to select, you know, the, the size of the slice they want and access that through base command. I see. So, so when you use base command, you're using DGX, but it's in NVIDIA's cloud and you get kind of a slice of it. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Although I, uh, you know, I know we call it NVIDIA GPU cloud, but really think of the, the whole base command proposition today as a SaaS portal that you access that is currently coupled to more like a rental program. So it's less like, you know, uh, cloud bursty, uh, elastic. Think of it more like, okay, I have three DGX A100s today. And then maybe, you know, in the next couple of months, I know and I need three more. So I'll call uh, you know, NVIDIA and say, hey, I need three more for the next month. And then that's that's kind of how that works. So maybe let's start with um, the, the DGX box. Like, I guess, what would a standard box look like? Like, what are what's its power draw? Like, how, how big is it? How much oh. does it cost? Can you, can you answer these questions? Just the order um, of magnitude. Yeah, so, I mean, you're looking at about uh, $300,000 for a single DGX A100. Uh, it'll have uh, eight GPUs and 640 gigabytes of uh, memory that come along with that. Uh, those are the A100 uh, GPUs, so the, the latest and greatest that we have. And, uh, you, you know, you're going to uh, gonna look at about 13 kilowatts per, uh, per rack uh, of standard deployment. That, 13 uh, kilowatts? Yeah, and you, you know you're gonna have Constant like or or just yeah when it's yeah training? no wow. no when it when when you fire these things up these puppies you know they <laughs> they heat up your they heat up uh, quite a lot so so yeah I mean they they're pretty powerful you know and so the DGX Superpot consists of at minimum twenty of those and uh, if you think about that right that's that's what we call one scale unit mm. uh, and uh, you know we have customers that build you know one hundred and forty of those. Wow. And, and what kinds of things do they do with that? Well, just all the, uh, the largest multi-node jobs that you could possibly imagine, right? Starting from uh, uh, climate change analysis, large, huge data sets, right? Um, that, that, need to be, uh, that need to be worked on there. NLP is, is a big, uh, a big draw for some of these customers, right? Just natural language processing and the analytics that comes with those uh, with those models is pretty intensive, data intensive and transfer intensive. And I think I should uh, I should mention that uh, you know we keep talking about the DGXs, right? And of course they're, we're very proud of them and, and all of that. But we uh, we also uh, you know acquired a company called Mellanox a year ago, and so of course the networking plays a huge role in the infrastructure layout of. Uh, of such a superpod. So if you have multi-rail InfiniBand connections between all of those boxes and the storage, which typically uses a parallel file system in a superpod, then what you'll get is an essentially a extreme performance even for multi-node jobs. So any job that even has to go above and beyond multiple GPUs, uh, you know, a DJ superpod architecture will get you there uh, essentially at the I would say probably one of the best uh, speed performance characteristics that you could possibly have. I mean, the Superpod scored number five on the top 500, so it's it's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. I guess, how does the experience of training on that compare to something that listeners would be more familiar with, like a, you know, a 2080 or 3080, which, which feels pretty fast already? Like, how much faster is this? And um, do you need to use a special version of... TensorFlow or PyTorch or something like this to even take advantage of the the parallelism. So I'd, I'd have to I'd have to check exactly how to quantify uh, like an A30 to an A100. But uh, think of it um, uh, think of it as this, right? So any any other uh, GPU that you would might want to use for training in in a traditional servo, uh, think of it as a subset of the capabilities of an A100, right? And so. If you look, uh, use, for example, our MIG capability, you can really slice that, that GPU down to a you know, T4 type performance uh, uh, profile, right? And say, well, I'm, I'm testing stuff out on a really small performance profile without having to occupy the entire GPU, right? And then once you, you, know, you, you sort of have the same approach, right? Uh, from a software perspective, if you do you, you know, your, your, uh, your sweeps, then you know you do essentially the same thing. Well, you could do those on 
on make instances, right? And and then thereby you don't need that many um, uh, DGXs when you do it. But I guess I should say that that's the beauty of uh, of CUDA uh, that if you write this once, uh, it'll run on an A30, it'll run on an A100, it'll run on a T4. And in fact, we provide a whole lot of uh, sort of base images that are uh, free for people to use and to start with, and then uh, sort of lift the tide for everybody, right? So uh, these are pre-optimized container images that people can build on. Mm. I would think there'd be a lot of kind of networking issues and parallelization issues that would come up maybe uniquely at this scale. Is that something that NVIDIA tries to help with? Does CUDA actually help with that? I sort of think of CUDA as like compiling something to run on a single GPU. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you if you think of uh, uh, CUDA as the sort of a very horizontal uh, platform piece, right, that uh, in the software stack of of uh, uh, of your AI training stack, then uh, components like Nickel, for example, provide you with pretty optimized uh, communication paths for multi GPU jobs, for example. But they also span multi multi nodes, right? And this starts from selecting the right NIC to exit a signal, right? And and going to, because that means you're going to the right port and the top of the rack switch. And that means you minimize the latency that uh, your signal takes from, you know, point A to point B inside your data center. So when you when you look at at, at CUDA uh, and especially at, at components like Nickel and Magnum IO as a, as a whole, which is sort of our, our, um, our portfolio of communication libraries and storage acceleration libraries, it starts from the integration of the hardware and the understanding of the actual chip itself, right? And then it builds outward from there. And the the big shift at NVIDIA that that we're we're, we're looking at um, uh, sort of accelerating with use of base command is, is this understanding that hey, you know, NVIDIA is now thinking about the entire data center. It's not just about you know I got the newest uh, GPU and now my game runs faster, right? Certainly, that's a, a, a focus area of us as well, right? But really, if you if you uh, take the entire stack and and, uh, and and work in inside out, essentially, then the value proposition just multiplies the 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 further out you go, right? And so, with base command, this is sort of the last step in this whole journey to turn it into kind of a hybrid proposition. Mm. Um, so. Anyway, I, I know it's it's very high level right now and 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 and, and abstract, but uh, but uh, it's it's sort of a it's a super interesting problem to solve because if you if you think about how uh, data center infrastructure uh, evolved over the last let's say ten years or so, right? Um, then it was about introducing more homogeneity into the actual layout of the data center. So, you know, a certain type of server, a certain type of CPU, a certain type of top of rack switch, and then a certain layout, right? So you have all these, uh, you know, non-blocking fabric uh, uh, reference architectures that are out there and et cetera, et cetera, right? And ultimately, now that everything is uh, homogeneous, you can now uh, address, make it addressable using an API because everything sort of is at least intended to behave in this very standard and predictable way. And so we worked our way up there. This has never been the case for something like a supercomputer. Uh, a supercomputer was a two-year research project with uh, you know a lot of finagling and in parameters here, and then set this thing to a magic value and that thing to a magic value, and then run it on you know five minutes after midnight, but not on Tuesdays, and then you get the performance right. Mm-hmm. And so th- this this whole uh, uh, contribution that we're really making here is is that we're raising that bar to a predictable performance profile that is repeatable, not just inside an NVIDIA data center where we know, you know, five minutes after midnight and so on, right? But also in your data center or in an actual random data center, provided you can afford the cooling and power, of course. But then, you know, once we got that out of the way, we're pretty good, right? So so that's that's a real shift forward towards enabling enterprises, real, you know, bona fide, true, you know, blue chip companies to actually adopt AI at a larger scale. It's interesting. One thing I was thinking of is, as you were talking is most of the customers that we work with, we don't always know, but it, I think what we typically see 
with our customers that are doing training a lot of machine learning models is they use a lot of NVIDIA hardware, but it's less powerful hardware than the the DGX. It might be like, you know, P100 or or basically whatever's available to them through um, Amazon or Azure or, or Google Cloud. And I think they do that for convenience. I think, you know, people come out of school knowing how to train on those types of infrastructure and then and then their compute costs do get high enough i mean we do see compute costs you know certainly well into the seven eight figures and so do you think that they're making a mistake by doing it that way like should they be um buying custom dgx hardware and and putting that in the collab would they actually save money or, or make their teams more productive if they did it that way Oh God, no, no. I, 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 so uh, you know, just to be really clear, it's just like I said, you know, base command is not a cloud, right? We're not intending to uh, go out there and say, you know, go go here instead of let's say Amazon or something like that. That's not what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, first of all, you can get a one hundred instances on all the major public clouds as well, right? So you you could have access to those uh, instances in just the same way that that you're uh, used to consuming, you know, the P. Uh, uh, the P100s or you know V100s or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's Pascal or Volta or Ampere uh, architecture, all of it is available in the public cloud. And like I said in the beginning, it's it's just a perfectly acceptable uh, way to start. In fact, it's the recommended path to start uh, in the cloud because it requires the least upfront investment. I mean, zero. And you, you get to to see you know how far you can push something and an idea. And then once you you arrived at a certain point, I think then it's a question of economics, and then just everything starts will start falling into place. What what we found is that enterprises typically arrive at a base load of GPUs. So in other words, at any given bo- moment in time, for whatever reason, there is a certain number of GPUs working, and you know once you identify that you know hey it, every day I have, I keep at least five hundred GPUs busy, well, then typically the economics are better if you purchase, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, uh, a kind of a CapEx approach works out better. It's not always the case, but typically that might be the case. And so to to meet that need uh, in in the market is is where we sort of come in. So what Base Command right now offers is this, it's not the all the way, you know, purchase it, right? You don't have to now have that, that, you know, big CapEx investment up front, but it is something in between, right? You do get to rent something. It's not entirely cloud, but, you know, you're moving from the Uber model to the, you know, national car rental type model, right? And then, you know, once you're you're done renting, then, you know, maybe you want to buy a car. But the, the point is that there is, there's room here in, in, on that spectrum. And so currently we're right smack in the middle of that one. So uh, that's, that's typically... Um, uh, uh, what we say to customers just uh, actually yesterday, somebody said, well, how do you support bursting and how elastic are you? And I said, that's, that's not the point here, right? You want to be in cloud when you want to be elastic and bursty. Uh, but typically that base load um, is done better in different ways. So now like what breaks if I don't use base command? Like if I, if I just purchased one of these machines and I'm just kind of shelling into the machine and, you know, kicking off my jobs the way, you know, I'm typically used to or, or running something in a notebook. Like, what what what's what starts to break where you know that you need something more sophisticated? So, well, on the face of it, nothing really breaks. It just takes a lot of expertise to put these things together. So, if you buy a single box, then there's probably very little value add in, in adding that to a SaaS platform per se, right? But as soon as you start thinking about a cluster of machines, and like I said more and more of our enterprise customers are actually thinking about deploying many of those, not just a single machine. And then as soon as that comes into play, then you're faced with all the traditional uh, skill challenges in, in, your, in your enterprise that you'd be used to from just rolling out private cloud infrastructure, right? It's the same exact journey. It's the same exact challenge, right? You need to have somebody who understands these machines, then they, somebody who understands networking, somebody who understands storage, uh, Kubernetes, and you know, and so on and so forth, right? And as soon as you build up the skill profile that you need to actually run this infrastructure at scale and at capacity, uh, then 
you, you, I mean, you're good to go, right? You can build your own uh, solution. But typically what you'd be lacking are things that, um, that then help you make the most of it. So all the kinds of efficiency um, uh, gains that you'd have by just having visibility into uh, the use of the GPU. So all the t- telemetry and the aggregate by job and by user and by team. So this, this entire concept of chargeback, et cetera, is a whole other hurdle that you then have to uh, climb, right? And so uh, what, what we're looking at is, you know, people who want to build a cluster, typically they want to do that because they want to share that cluster. Uh, like I said, it's uh, it's a pretty big, you know, pretty big beast you know so if you build a big cluster might as well because you want to be more efficient and you want to make the most of it and so now you need to have a broker right who who brokers access to the system uh you know super uh, supercomputers i mean as, as as ridiculous as it sounds i mean they work scheduling on a supercomputer typically is by post-it right it's Joe, it's your cluster this week, right? But I need it next week, right? And it's it's not it doesn't work that way at scale anymore, right? You 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 want to uh, interact with something uh, that that is actually understanding the use of the cluster, optimizing its use so that the overall output across all of the uh, users is 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 guaranteed at any given point in time. I have the sense that, like. Many years ago, like decades ago, like, you know, when I was a kid or maybe even before that, supercomputers felt like this really important resource that we we use for lots of applications. And then maybe in the 90s or the aughts, they became less popular. People started moving their compute jobs to sort of distributed commodity hardware. And maybe they're kind of making a comeback again. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an accurate impression and uh, do you have a sense of like what the the sort of forces are that that kind of makes supercomputers more or less interesting compared to just like you know making a huge stack of of chips that you could you know buy in the store yeah it's it is interesting right because um if you think about it we've actually oscillated back and forth between this concept a little bit for years right i mean you're exactly right you know you you had the the sort of the first wave of standardization was let's just use 19 inch rack units right and 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 start from there and then see maybe that's a little bit better right and then uh, sort of the same thing happened when we decided to use containers as uh, as an artifact to deliver software from point A to point B and you know it's just standardization and form factor really is is what uh, what drove us there right and uh, you know and certainly there's there's value in that, right? Um, the the thing, the interesting, uh, the interesting moment happens when <clears throat> when all of that together uh, becomes uh, when the complexity uh, complexity of running all of that together and lining it all just up, right? Because you just in the beginning you had one, you know, one IBM S three ninety, right? And you know that's the one thing you have to line up, right? And now you have two hundred. OEM servers across X racks, and you know that's a lot of ducks to, to line up, right? So, so the complexity and management of independent systems that you're sort of adding together—that sounds good on paper, but at some point, you're sort of crossing that complexity line where it's just more complex to even manage the hardware. Um, and this is not just from an effort perspective; this is also from a CPU load perspective. If more than fifty percent of your cores go towards just staying in sync with everybody else. Well, how much are you really getting out of each individual component that makes up this cluster, right? So so, so now you, of course, you, you're saying, well, how do I disrupt that? Well, you disrupt it by making assumption about how this infrastructure actually looks like rather than saying, well, you know, you're dropping the ocean. You first have to figure out where you're even at. And so if you eliminate that complexity, then fundamentally, you know, uh, you can go straight into uh, uh, focusing more on kind of a data plane uh, type uh, uh, focus rather than figuring out how the control plane looks like and how busy that one is, right? So uh, it, it's it's got a little bit of that, and I think the the DGX uh, represents an optimization that that shows you know rather than purchasing eight separate servers that you know that have potentially similar GPUs in them, right? Here's a way that it's 
you know, not only has those eight GPUs in them, but it also is con- interconnected in a way that uh, that just makes optimal assumptions about you know what's going on between those two GPUs and what could possibly run on them, and that combined with a software stack that's optimized for this uh, uh, for this uh, layout just uh, brings the value home, right? So, so that's really where we're coming from. It's interesting, you know, when I started doing machine learning the hardware was pretty abstracted away. Like we would kind of compete for computing resources. And so I got a little bit handy with, you know, like Unix and like nicing processes and just, right. you know, just sort of like coordinating with other people in um, yeah. grad school. But, but I really had no sense of, you know, the underlying hardware. I, I don't even think I took any classes on networking or, or chip architecture. And, and now I really regret it. You know, I feel like I'm actually learning more and more about it. And the hardware is becoming less and less abstracted away um, every year. And I think, you know, NVIDIA has a real um, role to play there. I mean, do you think that over time we'll go back to a more abstracted away hardware model and we'll kind of figure out the right APIs to this? Or, or do you think that, um, you know, we're going to make more and more specialized hardware for the different things that people are likely going to want to do in a core skill of an ML practitioner is going to need to be understanding how the underlying hardware works. Yeah, I, I, I think what you said there is, um, I, I, I'm reminded of like 10 years ago, we used to say, well, if you're a, a web front-end developer and you don't know TCP IP, you're not really a web front-end developer. But most web front-end developers will never think about TCP IP, right? So, and I think this is very true here too, right? You 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 have an MLOps practitioner, and today, you know, well, yeah, you get to think about your models and you know tensors, hyperparameter searches, and all of that kind of stuff. And yes, that's important. And well, not important; it's crucial, right? Without that, you couldn't do your work. But increasingly, you also have to know where you're actually running, right, in order to get the performance uh, that you need. So today, it's a real competitive advantage for the companies out there to increase their training speed, mm-hmm. right? Just the, just to, not just being able to, I mean, obviously what we're solving is just getting started, right? I mean, we take all that pain away. You just log on to Basecamp and off you go, right? But, but increasingly it's a true competitive advantage not to be in the cloud, but to, to be training faster than anybody else, right? Like 2012, 2013, you know, if you weren't, Working on a cloud initiative as a CIO, you know, that was a problem, right? Now, increasingly, if you're not focusing on how to accelerate AI training, now you're putting your company at a disadvantage. So that means that the necessity for each individual practitioner who interacts with the hardware to actually understand what they run on and and how to optimize for this is going just to, uh, it's going to increase. Now, having said that, though, part of our job at NVIDIA, I think, is to you know, make optimal choices on behalf of the practitioner out of the gate. So rather than, you know, requiring people to really understand, let's say the clock rates of each individual bus or something like that, right? We'll we'll abstract it away. And, you know, people will argue that CUDA is already still pretty low level. So, but, you know, we're actually abstracting a whole lot and, uh, you know, even to even get to that point. And so, uh, I, I would say uh, I would say while that's true, we're trying to shield the practitioner as much as possible, and we have a leg up because we can work with both the knowledge of how uh, the GPU looks like, and you know most importantly how the next GPU will look like, but also you know how to expose that optimally at the application layer, and then interact with the MLOps providers in a just kind of a meaningful way that uh, yeah that that just is optimal uh, throughout. Have there been any kind of cultural changes needed to build a SaaS customer-facing product like Base Command at a company that kind of comes up through making really great semiconductors and kind of very well? I would call it I would call it CUDA low level from from my vantage point. Um, and obviously, it's an amazing piece <laughs> of software, and it, but it's a very very low level software. Yeah, have has NVIDIA need to make adjustments to to kind of in, in the product development process to make base command work for customers? 
Yeah, it's interesting uh, because uh, base command is actually not a new product. Uh, we've been using this thing internally for over five years. And um, it was kind of a natural, um, sort of a natural situation for us because, you know, so five years ago, we launched the first DGX. And then, of course, if you if you launch something like the DGX, then and you, you say that's the best thing you could possibly, you know, purchase for the purposes of training and you have 2,600 uh, AI researchers in your in-house, then uh, you can imagine the next uh, sort of the obvious next question is like, okay, well, how do we use this thing uh, to, to accelerate our own AI research, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, this need for, for creating large-scale AI infrastructure on the basis of the DGXs was born, right, out of this the situation. And mm -hmm. so uh, with that came all these issues. And uh, as we solved them, we just kept adding to uh, this portal uh, or to this. It's not just, it's more just a portal, right? I mean, it's the entire stack. It's the infrastructure provisioning, you know, and then uh, the exposure, the, the middleware, the scheduler, the, you know, the, the entire thing, right? So it became more and more um uh, obvious to us what what should be done, and so these two thousand six hundred uh, uh, researchers that I'm, that I just mentioned, I mean, bless their heart, right? They really had to go through a lot of iteration with us and be very patient with us, um, you know, until we got it to the point where uh, they would, well, let's say, not complain as much. But um, you know, the point is that we really tried to get it right, and uh, we we uh, you know acted in a very transparent manner with a pretty large community of AI researchers and developers. And they told us what they needed and what they wanted and what their pain points were. And so really uh, this, this going to market uh, now with base command as, a, as an externally facing product was simply turning that to the outside. Have there been any surprises in taking it to market because I know that sometimes when companies have an internal tool, like I think the TensorFlow team has talked about this, that you know it's kind of made for, especially for like a really really advanced large team, and then you want to take it to you know someone who's newer or a smaller team. They kind of have new needs that are a little bit surprising to people that have been doing this for a long time. Have have you encountered anything like that as you bring it to market? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's funny you ask. So um, we encounter this in it's it just in many different aspects. So one uh, one example is is that most customers. So like I said, I mean we make this available. It's the 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 uh, the sort of the internal example that we use is oh you get to drive the Lamborghini for a while, right? And so uh, you know so the idea is this is a short term rental. I mean how long are you renting a Lamborghini, right? Maybe a day or two, right? But or a weekend. Uh, and so here we're, we're saying, well, you know, short-term rental, they're probably going to rent this for three months or, you know, something like that. Uh, well, it turns out most customers want to rent this for two years, three years, right? And, and so what surprised us was that there's a real need for, uh, well, not only for a long-term rental, but especially the immediacy of access to this. I think we had underestimated the, uh, a little bit how desperate the market was to get started right away. I mean, we knew that that people would want to get started, right? But we always figured, okay, well, you know, the cloud is there to get started right away. I mean, just sign up and swipe your credit card and off you go, right? But no, but it's also the need for large-scale training and just the immediacy of that need that, that uh, personally wasn't a surprise to me. I hadn't expected that. Uh, I thought that would be much more of a slow ramp than it uh, than it was. Um, so, uh, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I thought I was going to be in different sales conversations than uh, than I actually was found myself in. Uh, mm. And so, uh, so that was a surprise. Uh, surprises are just you know uh, understanding just how much people still have to go. Uh, you know, they they typically um, we, we encounter folks who say, well, you know, I really my way to scale and accelerate my training is just to pick a larger GPU. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's a big, big portion of the market that certainly has been operating that way, right? But really helping them see that 
you know, sometimes it's not the, you know, sort of the scale up model, but the scale out model that might be appropriate uh, as kind of the next step. Um, I think that was, it wasn't exactly surprising, but it was interesting to see just how, uh, how widespread that, that scale up thinking uh, was rather than the scale out thinking. Can you say more about scale up versus scale out? What do you, what do you mean? What's the difference? So, yeah, I mean, if you think about uh, cloud infrastructure, then a scale up con- uh, uh, approach would be, you know, you start with a medium instance and you go to an X large or something like that. So you just choose more powerful uh, resources to power the same exact hardware, but you don't really think about adding a second server, for example, and now spread the load ac- across multiple instances. So uh, here it would be something similar, right? So like I said, if you if you always think about saying, well, okay, I, I choose to run this on a, on a, a, a Volta-based system, right? And now I have a Volta-based GPU. And now my way to make this faster is to go to an Ampere-based architecture GPU, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be scaling up. And certainly, you know, that's something that you want to do. But at some point, you're saying you, you, your, your pace of and your need of for accelerated training actually exceeds the, the uh, sort of the cadence at which we can provide you the next fastest GPU, right? So if you need to scale faster than that, and if that curve exceeds the other, then you're essentially in a situation where you have to say, well, how about I take a second A100, right? And and then I have a multi-GPU scenario and I just deal with that, right? And so on and so forth. And so then the natural conclusion of that is, well, you know, how about multi-node jobs where, you know, there are smack full of, of, of the latest and greatest GPUs. And then, you know, how many nodes can I spread my job across? And if you, if you do, you know, I don't know, 5 billion parameters, then yeah, you know, you're going to have to do that. And uh, then, then you're going to be pretty busy, right? Trying to organize again, a job across, across a, a, a multiple sets of nodes. Do you have any sense on how your customers sort of view the trade-off of, you know, buying more GPUs, buying more hardware to make their models perform better. Do they, are they really doing like a clear ROI calculation? One of the things that we see at Weights and Biases is that um, it seems like our customers' sort of use of GPUs just expands to fit whatever um, capacity they they actually have, which I'm sure is like wonderful for nvidia but you know you wonder if if the day will come where people start to scrutinize that cost more more carefully or even um you know some people have pointed out that there there's possibly even environmental impact from just monstrous training runs or even a kind of a sad effect where you know no one can replicate the you know the latest academic research if it's only going to be done at like you know multi-million dollar scale um, yeah. Compute. How, how do you think about that? In the end, I think it's it's a it's a pretty simple concept. I think that uh, if if the competitive advantage for companies today is derived from being able to train faster and and larger and better models, you're not speaking to the CFO anymore, right? You're you're you're, you're speaking to the product teams, and so at that point, it it just becomes a completely different conversation, right? I mean. The, the, the only interesting piece uh, here is that traditionally, of course, data center infrastructure is a cost center, whereas now we're, we're talking about it turning it into a value center. And so if you turn it into a value center, then uh, you really don't have this problem. Now, yes, of course, we have extensive ROI conversations with our customers or, uh, you know, we have TCO calculators and all that good stuff is, is definitely there. And it's really about uh, helping customers choose, you know, should we do more cloud for, uh, you know, for, for where we're at? And then, uh, you know, from a GPU standpoint, we're happy either with either outcome, right? So we're, we're maintaining neutrality in that, in that aspect that we're saying, well, if, if more cloud usage is, turns out to be better for you, then you should absolutely go and do that, right? And then if we figure out that the, the economic shifted in such a way that uh, a mix of cloud and on-prem or cloud and hosted resources makes sense, then, you know, we'll, we'll propose that, right? So it's, it's really about uh, finding the, the best solution there. And definitely our customers are asking these questions and, 
making pretty hard calculations uh, on on that, right? But I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, if you think about it, what was it uh, a couple of years ago? We we you know talked to an autonomous driving lab team, and um, they said, well, you know, company A put three hundred thousand miles autonomously on the road last year, and we put seventy thousand uh, miles on the road last year autonomously, right? We got to change that, right? How how do I how do I at least match the 300,000 uh, miles a year that I can put autonomously on the road, right? And so that's a direct function of how well does your model work, right? And, uh, and, and so on and so forth, right? So it's a pretty clear tie-in uh, uh, right now. What about inference? A lot of the customers that we talk to, inference is really the dominant compute cost that that they have so the the training is actually much smaller than the spend yeah. on 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 inference do you offer solutions for inference too like could i use base command at, at inference time or is it entirely training and do people ever use these dgx machines for inference or would that just be a crazy waste of an incredibly expensive resource well um I mean, yes and no. I mean, it depends on how you use it. So first of all, you can use uh, base command for model validation purposes, right? So you can have sort of single shot runs. But um, some customers want to set up a, a server that is dedicated to inference and then just take mix slices and, and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll do my model validation at scale, basically. I'll do my scoring there. And, and so now if you share that uh, infrastructure across a large number of data scientists, you know, you, you put your DGX to a good use. I mean, there, there's no issue with that, right? Um, we do have a, 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 a sort of a sister uh, SaaS offering to base command called fleet command. And that is meant to take the output of base command in form of a container, of course, and then deploy that at scale and orchestrate it uh, at scale and really manage the inference workloads at the edge uh, for our customers. So it's an end-to-end coverage there from a SaaS perspective. Cool. In your view, based on the problems that you're seeing in the market, what functionality are our customers asking for in their software layer for machine learning training that you're interested in providing? That's a that's a really good question because it sort of uh, goes to the sort of the heart of the question: what role, uh, what space is Base Command seeking to occupy? You know, in in a theoretical stack of where, you know, the infrastructure is at the bottom and something like weights and biases at the, at the top, right? I, I would see uh, base command's role as a, an arbiter and a pro- broker and um, almost like a bridge between, you know, a, a pure developer-focused, almost like an IDE perspective and, and bridge that into um, enterprise-ready architecture. So let me give you a simple example. If you do... Um, uh, dataset versioning, right? And then let's say that's that's you know what you what you want to do with with your MLOps platform. Then um, you know then there's there's many ways to to version data, right? And you you can try and be smart about this, but at the end of the day, right? It's a question of what infrastructure is available to you. If if I have an optimized storage file underneath, my dataset versioning strategy might be looking entirely different. Then, if I just have kind of a scale-out open-source storage backend, right? Mm-hmm. If if I work with uh, S3 buckets, then my versioning looks different. Uh, you know, then then I do that with NFS shares, right? And so, the the uh, the value that base command provides is that it abstracts that away. If you do data set versioning with base command, then you know it'll do snapshots. If you do it on a NetApp filer, if you know it'll, it'll do other things. If you do it with a different storage and and so, uh, but those are exactly the questions that an enterprise, you know, architect will be interested in. How do you deal with that? Am I going to have to, like, just because you you figure you need fifty versions of your data set that's three terabytes, you know, large? Do you, does that mean I need to plan for like almost infinite storage? No, it doesn't. Right? We we can help you uh, translate that and make that consumable um, uh, uh, in the enterprise. And I think that's. That's a big. That's a big piece that that I think that base command can provide um, as this arbiter between the infrastructure and the 
and sort of the the API, if you will. Um, the second thing is is increasingly I've seen people being uh, very concerned about uh, data security and governance around this. So if you have a, a you know sufficiently large uh, infrastructure to deal with, then almost always you have multiple geos to deal with. They have different laws about the data that's being allowed at any given point in time. And so just the ability to say, well, this data set can never leave France, right? Or that data set has to only be visible to these three people and nobody else, right? Is of extreme value to um, uh, to enterprises. So all those things come into play. And I think that's where base command can, can help. Are there other parts of base command that you, you've put a lot of work into that people might not realize the amount of effort that it took that might be in, in, invisible just to, to, to a customer, even just me sort of even imagining what, what base command does? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, we invested a lot in our scheduler. And I, I think if you if you look at the, um, uh, the layout of, of DGXs in a, in a super pod arrangement and the nature of the jobs that go go into this, I think people uh, underestimate just how optimized the scheduler is across, you know, not just multiple nodes, but also within the node, right? So for you to be able to say, um, I'm, I'm running a job with one GPU configuration and then it's a slider. And I say, well, I'm turning this into an eight GPU job now. And that's literally a selection. Uh, what goes on in the background is it's just a lot more intricate than people typically realize. But it goes on automatically, and you know, I mean, you you, you do have to be uh, uh, you do have to be ready for it. You have to program for it, and people know that, right? But as soon as you do that at, at your layer, all the optimization underneath is just incredible. And what's tricky is it like you need to find HGPs that are close to each other and and not being used and all that. Is that the that's yeah the exactly challenge? right? Yeah, data locality, uh, you know, caching uh, strategies, all that kind of stuff. Right, is 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 going straight into into that selection. Mm, cool. All right. Well, you know, we always end with two questions, um, both on ML. So let's let's see uh, how you answer them. So um, one thing we always ask is what's an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to, or you would love to spend time on if you, if you had more free time? I think what's underrated is uh, this aspect of crowdsourcing. I don't think anybody is, is looking at, at machine learning and the potential that, that just many small devices that, can, that are contributory to uh, the creation of a model uh, would bring. I think that we're at the cusp of that. Um, but we're not really doing that right now. I think uh, the to the degree that it already happens, it's very hidden from us, right? It's, you know, we all know Google will run some algorithms across data that was collected through the phones, right? Like we understand that on a conceptual level, but just the ability to... Um, to bring that together in a more natural sense that we might want to find recommendations, not on the basis of... of uh, a single parameter would find recommendations of more meaningful parameters. I find five-star reviews very meaningless, for example, right? I think that is a very simplified view of the world. And I find uh, consequently also one-star reviews very meaningless, right? But if you could actually have a, a, a more uh, natural understanding based on, on machine learning, I think that would be that would be an interesting topic to explore because it it, it would have to be based on just all kinds of inputs that would have to be taken into account. So I would like to see that. And I think uh, that would be an interesting field of research, an interesting field of development. I think people um, still assume that it's only a prerogative of the big companies to be able to do that. But I think there's, there's a, I just know it, there's an open source project in there somewhere. <laughs> cool. I hope somebody starts that Yeah, and, and they should send it to us when they do. Um, and our, our our final question is when when you look at your customers and and um, their effort to to take you know business problems and and turn them into machine learning problems and deploy them and and solve those problems, where do you see the biggest bottleneck? Like where are they struggling the most right now? The biggest issue 
uh, they have, at least as far as I can tell, is that they have a, a, a just a getting started issue uh, in the sense of how do I how do I scale this beyond my initial POC? So I think that the prefab solutions that are out there are pretty good at walking you through, you know, a getting started tutorial, and then they'll probably get you really far. Um, you know, if you if you're a serious practitioner and you devote some time to it, but I think that at some point uh, you'll you hit problems that may not even have anything to do with you know ML. Uh, they may just have something to do with infrastructure that's available to you and and things like that, right? So I think that um, anybody trying to use this for a commercial and a business strategic purpose is going to run into an issue of sooner or later, right? Uh, how do I how do I uh, go from from point A to point B here? People call it like uh, what was it? Um, it was something like AI DevOps or something like that uh, that that floated around. And I think as an industry, uh, we should be aiming uh, to make sure that that job never comes and sees the day of you know uh, uh, sees the the light of day. Um, Too late, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I I feel like we we lost on that one already. But uh, but I I really think you know we we should do better. We shouldn't have to require super special skills to to create kind of this whole DevOps uh, approach around AI training. Um, we should really know better by now how that whole approach works, and then build products that that uh, that drive that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. That's fun. Thank you. If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it. 